Welcome to the CEC report for the 17th of August 2018. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is Robert Barwick, CEC Research Director. Welcome, Robert. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, how to fix Australia's banks before a crash, separation, compensation, incarceration. And secondly, our dangerous allies are the obstacles to peace and development. So firstly today, how to fix Australia's banks before a crash, separation, compensation, incarceration. We have come up with a three-word slogan, Elisa, which is how you get things done politically in Australia. And after my week in Canberra, I'm convinced those are the three things that are urgent. That's right. So the Royal Commission is rolling on, and it's really on a roll, and so is our campaign for Glass-Steagall, which we'll talk about today. We're also going to go through some of the latest updates on the financial crash, um, you know, which is rolling right along very fast, which is why we need to get this process done now. We can't actually wait for the end of the Royal Commission. We have to get motion on Glass-Steagall through uh, the Parliament. We, how, how much more evidence do we need? It's all been presented. And the solution to everything that's been presented so far is break them up. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about a couple of the predicates from the latest week of hearings of the Royal Commission, which focused on superannuation. Uh, now, firstly, the Commonwealth Bank, their superannuation trustee was charging dead customers and their way of solving it was to notify people in the fine print that they would be charged for up to three months after death. That was their solution. That makes, that makes it more honest. Yeah. Um, now, the CBA's wealth arm, Colonial First State, has also admitted to some 15,000 offences in regard to superannuation accounts. And what came out in the hearings is that APRA did not prosecute the offences, but one bank representative said that she wasn't surprised about that and that they thought they had resolved the issues satisfactorily, which, of course, they wouldn't be coming up if well, they Well, they, they did resolve it satisfactorily for the bank. Yeah, for them. Um, now, the NAB was also on the stand significantly, and they, of course, were charging fees for no service on super accounts, fee gouging and not refunding tax surpluses. Um, the superannuation accounts of NAB employees were actually earning six and a half times the rates that NAB were giving to normal customers. So that goes to show what was going on there. Now, Nicole Smith spoke on the stand at the Royal Commission. She's the head of the trustee responsible for NAB's super funds. And she was being questioned by assisting counsel Michael Hodge in regard to these fees charged for no service on super accounts. And I want to play a clip here of where uh, Commission, Royal Commissioner Kenneth Hayne intervened on that discussion. Did you think yourself <clears throat> that taking money uh, to which there was no entitlement raised a question of the criminal law? Uh, I didn't. Go on. Now, what you see in that clip, Elisa, is Hain is starting to implant in their minds, listen, everything we're talking about here, heck, this has criminal consequences. Right? You're talking about taking money for nothing. And also what you see is how foreign a concept that is to these bankers. Mm. What? what? There's something wrong with that? Right? That, and then APRA and ASIC have allowed this culture to exist. 
Right, so it's yeah. pretty stark. And in this next clip, Hayne is taking the gloves off. He's in an interchange here uh, with the lawyer for Miss Smith and the lawyer's trying to say why she probably shouldn't need to testify on this next Bear subject Bear in mind, these banks, these banks turn up with an army of lawyers. They have the... like. Mm. I spent a week with bank victims in Canberra. They get... The, the, the banks use the courts as a weapon against them. They crush them in the courts. They just grind them down to, to dust because they've got so much legal firepower... So this is a particularly important exchange because Hayne is, is saying, who's boss? Mm. We fail to apprehend at the moment why this matter and the tender of these documents need involve Miss Smith at all, nor detain her, because on, on our instructions, her answer will be that she had no involvement well, you will not in give, these matters. You will not give her her answer, Mr Young. I'm you not, will not. Do you understand me? I'm not attempting to give any answer, Commissioner. I'm attempting to explain the situation why we think this matter ought not to detain Miss Smith. Yes, and you will not indicate what answer you think she may give. And in response to these particular discussions, one senior bar barrister referred to these fees for no service as literally theft, because that's what it is. Um, and on the stand was also the NAB Chief Customer Officer, Andrew Hagger. His defence for it all was, quote, we had a fundamental belief, which I still hold today, that customers tend to know whether services had been provided or not. Now, let me say something about that. The reality is, with superannuation, we're all forced into it. All working Australians have been forced into this system. All young people, all they know is money's taken out of their account, they're in some super fund. They're not thinking about 50 years ahead when they're going to retire. Nobody is looking at it. They know that. Now, there's a, mm. there's a, there's a bunch of older people that start looking over the details of their accounts, etc. But these banks know nobody's looking at it. That guy is being worse than a liar, right? They're just, they're, this is the caveat emptor thing. Oh, it's let the buyer beware, you're responsible. For, if, if you're swindled, you're responsible yourself. But they know that a system's been set up for them to take full advantage of. The other thing, just um, what you said earlier, sort of proves it, where NAB employees for their own fund, they're getting six and a half times mm. what their customers get, whereas their customers are getting two and a half percent less than any other fund that's not owned by a bank. Mm. Right, so what these traders are doing, this is what happens when you have super, banks owning super fund, anything, but the banks own them and they can um, set the fees uh, in a way that don't get noticed and that all goes back to the bank, right? And then, uh, as Dr. Wilson side pointed out in the submission to the Productivity Commission, they can do trading, that, you know, they give advice to these funds, say, okay, we'll invest in this, we'll invest in this, well, that involves trading. But they, the bank knows what they've just told their funds they're going to invest in, mm -hmm. right? which they do. They can front run those trades. They go buy those shares first and then sell them on to the customers and make a healthy profit every time. They can't lose. Mm. And they just, all that goes to their own money and they just get to fleece and bleed and gouge and loot their customers mm. with, with impunity. And this is why, of course, <clears throat> that this has to, it's another element of the banking superstructure that has to be broken the problem, up. The problem is the structure. It's got to, there's no, you can't say, oh, well, you've got to behave better. Mm. No, don't trust them in the first place. Break them up. Yep.
And this is being discussed in the wake of this last week's session of the Royal Commission. The other thing that's being discussed is criminal charges. Now, the Australian had an article which indicated this on the 31st of August by Richard Gluyas called Banking Royal Commission, Hain Terrifies Banking Industry. Um, and they quote an observer of what they call the gruesome spectacle saying, Hain is frightening the crap out of everyone. The entire industry is on its toes. This is going to resonate forever. Uh, and the article goes on to say that a director of a financial services company paused last week when asked if he thought Mr Hain was intent on scaring the daylights out of people, using the public hearing process as a battering ram to force cultural change on the industry. If that's the plan, it's working, the director said grimly. And then the author went on to say that those who know Mr Hain believe he will not hesitate to press for criminal charges against bankers where the evidence supports it. And many, the, the article indicated, are bracing for criminal charges. Um, and then he also reports on the discussion about breaking up the vertical integration of superannuation management. Yeah, so, that, so what I'd say to all that, Lisa, that, that is, so, as far as it goes, that's very good. But for this fact, um, Hain may be scaring the life out of these guys, but that's not how you fix the system going forward. You can't just rely on them being afraid, Right. It's like, um, uh, you know, thinking, well, animals are afraid of man, therefore a man can wander through the jungle with impunity. No, no. They'll find a way. They'll always find a way. They're predators, right? So you've got to lock them out. And that's, that's the main thing. It, it cannot be um, diverted into thinking, oh, they've had a good, they, they've had the, the fear of God put into them, they'll be behaving themselves from now mm. on. No, that's not going to work. It has to be legislation to, to break them up. And that's yep. what Alan Fells um, endorsed last week. I got the the criticism though that's that's brewing of the Royal Commission is that s over six thousand people made submissions as bank victims. Of that total, sixteen have been heard. Hmm. Of the farmers, there was like five cases heard, and there's thousands and thousands of them. Right. So this week in Canberra, when I was there, they there was a, an event for bank victims, and most of them were farmers who came. Five times the number that had been able to testify at the Royal Commission were able to give their testimony in Canberra. It was devastating. In future weeks of this show, we'll show some of those clips mm. of what it is. And that's why the three issues are separation. You've got to, first thing to do with the banks, you don't have to wait, just separate them. Stop them being able to do this. Compensate the victims. I mean, these are terrible cases. And I, I have one proposal, just, just thinking out loud of how this could be done easily. Malcolm Turnbull should put his tax cuts in for all for all corporations, but then fine the banks the seventeen billion dollars mm. that they're going to get, and that goes to the victims. Easy peasy, right? So there's no there's no discrimination against the banks in terms of the tax cuts, but get that money back from them for the victims. Something like that. It's easy to do. Um, and the third one is <laughs> bankers. Sorry, around the world have to go to jail. Mm. Um, we, you know, one of our associates in Japan was in the Ministry of Finance there. In 1999, he had to reform Japan's banks and send his own friends, some of his own friends to jail, right? In 2008, though, nine years later when the crisis happened, Japanese bankers were not doing the derivatives trading that they were doing in New York that caused the crisis because they'd learned from the fact that a whole bunch of them went to jail in 1999. Now, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to keep talking about this shortly.
welcome back to the CEC report where we're discussing the necessity to break up the banks before the new oncoming global financial crash. Now in the context of what you were just discussing, uh, Robert, about the bank victims that were in Canberra last week to discuss the crimes of the banks that have not many which have not even come up in the Royal Commission, there was a Senate resolution which was passed unanimously mm. uh, to extend the Royal Commission. Can you tell us about that and the momentum for Glass-Steagall? Yeah, so that happened that just after this um, bank victims event and, and, and quite a few members of Parliament came into the bank victims event and watched these victims give their um, stories. And it, it's becoming an obvious point, everyone knows, that the Royal Commission has done a good job as far as it goes, but it's only touching the surface, mm. right? And it could, you could have, um, they compared it to the, to the Child Abuse Royal Commission of five commissioners, uh, there was five, six commissioners, five years, and 5,000 people got to have their, say their story, yeah. right? So this is, no, by comparison, this is just literally touching the surface. So when it was actually Senator Fraser Anning who moved the motion, and that was before, he, a few hours before he gave his speech that got all the attention for the rest of the, uh, the week, that tells you how the media works, by the way, because mm. they, they much prefer to, to report all this controversial stuff, right, and, and exaggerate some of it. Um, you know, uh, th there's a lot that Fraser Anning said that I definitely disagree with, but the, the media like playing a certain game with it, right? Because the real story that was, the, the, the more fundamental thing he did that day was move a motion that no one in the major parties was game to oppose. That tells you there's a lot of, this is a time when we can finally get some traction here, right? And we've got to turn that into policy though. And that's what, why Glass-Steagall is so important. So as part of that, um, people are starting to pay close attention to the fact that, you know, the banks have to be broken up. So the, a few days before we got there, the Greens came out with their policy of total separation. Alan Fells has endorsed it. Members of parliament have taken notice of all that, right? But we have to make sure it sticks. And that comes down to, let me again appeal to see, see mm. viewers. Um, your persistence is important. One, I got to, one of the bank victims um, at this event became a friend of mine. He organised meetings for me and Wilson site through sheer persistence, right? And because politicians will try and fob you off or they're too busy or whatever, don't let them. Mm. And keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing and get this issue in their face at this time. And you never know what you're going to get because one MP that you mentioned um, from an unexpected quarter had said to us, now's the time to do this, where a yep. lot of MPs are saying, oh, we'll wait, we'll for, wait the for the end of the Royal Commission. Commission. Yeah, no, no, don't wait. So yeah, that's, that's right. She said, it's got to be, let's do it now. Yep. Because, as I said before, what other evidence do you need? Mm, exactly. And the other point, which we'll come to now, is the, the financial crisis globally bearing down, which we talk about a lot on the show because nothing's been resolved since the 2007-08 crisis. In fact, it's all much, much worse. And the latest thing on the horizon are the currency crises that are breaking out in emerging markets such as Turkey, Argentina. We've had other currencies like the Russian ruble, the Chinese currency affected also. But the real story here is that you've had since the 2008 crisis a sea of US dollar debt pumped out through quantitative easing across the world. And its latest playground in the recent year or more has been these emerging markets that have put out various bonds and so yeah. forth and attracted that money. So they've now got quite a large debt. And what you see now that the quantitative easing is now being um, wind, wound back is that that money is receding like the tide going out and these countries are being left exposed. So the crash of the Turkish lira by 43% in four months, the peso and so forth by 33% 
the big corporate debt that countries like Turkey have, which Europe the, is exposed to. That's right, the European banks. One of the worries about Turkey, Elisa, is that it has $180 billion in 12-month debt or less. Mm. Well, that is a worry. It's also, if that's a worry for Turkey, Australia has $756 billion in 12-month debt mm. or less, 400, more than 490-day debt or less. And we also, in recent years, have had that quantitative easing money from America coming into our property market. So we, we, there's a, mm. all the tensions on Turkey, but don't get rest on your laurels. The same dynamics apply to us. Yeah, and the, um, speaking of the Australian housing bubble, of course, we now have the phenomenon of housing prices in places, the major bubble markets like Sydney beginning to drop. We have a raft of interest-only loans that are coming due in 2019 to 2020. Uh, Moody's has stated that when these loans shift over to interest plus principal, the default rate is double that of when they were only interest only. There's a report from Houses and Holes this week that a Sydney agent is saying 50% uh, of his clients are asking him to sell their homes in Sydney's western suburbs because now that they are switching to interest plus principal, they can't afford the mortgage. That's macro business, by the way. Houses and Holes yep. are macro business. That's That kind of sale rate, forget it. The prices are just going to plummet more. Mm. Investor finance commitments are down. And there's a lot of investors who have been in this practice of buying, buying big blocks of property to subdivide or sell. So they'll flip it at a certain point when the price goes up and now they're caught holding something they can't get rid of. All of which is it's the immediate impact is on house prices. But this is the looming disaster that our banks are heading into. The property prices crash here. The banks will crash on the back of it. And that's why as we said at the beginning, get this, fix up the banking system now mm. ahead of that. Yeah, so call, call us, give us a call. We'll send you a free copy of our Australian Alert Service if we haven't already so that you can find out more and feel confident to go and visit your MP. Keep and hammering them. That's right. Now, we'll be back just after this break to discuss another subject. Welcome back to the CEC Report. We're now discussing our dangerous allies are the obstacles to peace and development. Uh, now, on the 7th of August, Malcolm Turnbull, Prime Minister, gave a speech that was, for a change, conciliatory towards China. Um, he acknowledged Chinese development would not inevitably lead to conflict and other such things, which was a good change in tone. Uh, but, of course, there was no mention of the sorts of policies that need to be wound back if he wants to put his money where his mouth is, such as repudiating our 2016 Defence White Paper, which names China as the biggest threat to the rules-based order. To the our rules-based order. That's right. Um, there were no, no discussion of any plans to scrap the foreign interference laws, which were clearly aimed at China, and no concrete moves to collaborate with the Belt and Road Initiative. It's all still just talk. And the main reason, Elisa, that those three things you cited have to be wound back is they're not Australia's, in Australia's interest. They're not our mm. policies. They're things we're doing on behalf of our dangerous allies, the United Kingdom and the United States. Which is a terminology that came from Malcolm, Malcolm Fraser, Fraser, who referred yeah, to the US and the UK in that way. Now, I want to play a quick clip of Gavin Williamson. He's the UK Defence Secretary, and he made a speech at the Atlantic Council on the 7th of August. And he presented the concept, um, particularly since Brexit, but really after the GFC, that Britain has had of, quote-unquote, global Britain. Can I warn people before they watch this clip? He ain't no Winston Churchill. Yeah, so <laughs> don't, don't be fooled by the way he says it. 
what he says is actually very dangerous. Yeah. Don't be put off by his, by his style. And just to situate it, he's talking about the expansion of Britain's presence around the world in a military sense, in a trade sense, and in terms of influence. Uh, he talks earlier in the speech about using Britain's hard and soft power uh, to extend their influence. He brags about their vibrant defence industry. He talks about how the UK is expanding its presence deploying Royal Navy ships to the Indo-Pacific, increasing its presence around the entire world, and he also attacks China and Russia. In this clip in particular, he's talking about British troops being everywhere all the time, protecting people. Of course, if any other nation tries to expand its influence or put its military all over the world, you know, China has but one overseas military base. In this way, they would be absolutely denounced they're, they're and attacked. They're evil, etc., yeah. but... We just let Gavin Williamson can say this on Britain's behalf and it's all good. So we'll just roll that clip. First, we are ready to respond to any situation. At a moment's notice, we have forward deployed forces across the globe. We can draw on our overseas territories in Gibraltar, the sovereign base areas in Cyprus, Ascension Islands, the Falkland Islands, the British Indian Ocean territories. These often provide key facilities, not just for us, but also for the United States. And we're extending our presence with our new naval base in Bahrain. We can also bring in allies other than the US as and when required, such as our nine-nation joint expeditionary force of like-minded northern European nations which can muster up to 10,000 personnel to respond to any type of operation. From humanitarian assistance through to high-end warfighting. Above all, our readiness comes from having world-class personnel, the embodiment of our global Britain, our Great Britain. More than 14,000 personnel deployed on operations around the globe with 19,000 preparing to deploy or at readiness to respond. Being ready is only one thing, but the United Kingdom has that essential willingness, a willingness to act. The willingness to use military force when other measures fail. The willingness to operate where others cannot or will not go. So as I said, Elisa, just because he comes across like an upper-class Frank Spencer from some mothers <laughs> do have him, what he says is actually very dangerous, and that is the threat to the world. Mm. Now, Australia is actually in a crucial position here, which is why we have to make these shifts we were just talking about, what Turnbull should do. Because we're in the Asian Pacific region, this is where China you know, is unfurling its Belt and Road Initiative and beyond. So Britain has, of course, been made, making a major push to expand its influence in this region, which we've written about in the Australian Alert Service uh, since the GFC, because at that point it could see that the only area of growth in the world was Asia, was coming out of what China was doing, of pumping money into real productive development and infrastructure. So Britain took the initiative to begin to monopolise um, the international trade of the renminbi, and, of course, its influence on Australia is therefore critical in keeping um, the, the world looking the way that it wants, keeping control. Britain thinks geopolitically all the time. It's always divide and conquer, alliances, influences, etc. And not as a nation state, in a sense, minding its own business and putting the welfare of its people first. And just an important point, this week there was an, ag an agreement 
between the ASEAN countries and China to, for a framework of how to resolve disputes in the South China Sea. Left to their own devices, they can do that. Mm. They don't need American warships and British warships and Australian tugboats or, mm. <laughs> or rubber duckies tagging along with them to, because we are, the, we are the problem in there. They can figure these things out themselves, and that's what they did, did this week, and we've got to start insisting our country stops doing that type of thing. Yep, and play a beneficial role, and you can read more about that in the Australian Alert Service because that's all we've got time for. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Alisa. Thanks for tuning in, and see you again next week. Mm -hmm.